0: I am the teaching slave of my master, Lucius Atticus the Younger. We are both members of my church in Ephesus, and I am one of the speaking elders at our church. I am not a student of your time or your culture, but though I am not of your time or of your culture, I think I have something I can share with you. Uh, Paul has visited our town in Ephesus some 2,000 years ago, and he left us with a set of instructions that I think will be very relevant for you, living in the 21st century. He he wrote to us a text that may not initially seem to connect with most of you in this room, but of which I believe is of perhaps the most important for your, for your time frame. Because you might ask yourself the question, what could a slave from first century Rome possibly have to say to the freest group of people who have ever lived? Well, like all pastors, a lot. Quite a lot, in fact. I would like for you to open Your texts to Ephesians chapter 6, and read with me verses 5 through 10, if you will. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. Not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Let's pray after the reading of God's word. Lord in heaven, we thank you that you are in charge, that you are our master and that you do not show favoritism, and that you bestow and reward those who earnestly seek you and follow you. And as we discuss what the implications are of Ephesians to our lives, help us to do more than just hear this word, uh, but to do what it says. In your name we pray. Amen. I'd like to clarify a few misunderstandings that often people bring to this particular text. Uh, When I think of the word slavery, I have discovered very quickly it is not the same kind of slavery that you think of when you think of the word slavery. Uh, I do, again, do not know a lot about your history, but I do know that not all slavery in its institutional form is the same. There are differences. And in my particular form in Roman culture, it is very different from yours. Now, most of you know that there are millions of slaves in Rome. In fact, some scholars estimate that in Rome itself, one out of three people is a slave. And if you were part of a farming community, it could be up to half of that community could be slaves. So, there's a lot of slavery, but there's a lot of differences. The first major one is that in my culture, it's not built on race. We did not, the Roman culture did not go in and capture people based on race and kidnap them. Slavery comes about through a lot of different means. Uh, One of the major means is prisoners of war. To be, you know, as you know, Rome is quite the conquering nation, and any time they would conquer a new place, soldiers and opposition were enslaved and brought back to Rome. So that's one major difference, prisoners of war. Another thing, which is my particular story, I was born the son of a slave, and therefore I am a slave to my master, Lucius Atticus, the younger. I was born at the same time as him. Another way you could become a slave is you could uh, sell yourself. If you had, had fallen on hard times, you could you could cause yourself and your family to become a slave to a person by your own choice in order to be able to live. And just so you're aware, I live better than many free people in the Roman Empire, even though I am a slave. And perhaps the the most uh, misunderstood form, or the most difficult form, is what we would call the foundling system. Uh, I don't know if you know much about my culture, but abortion had its form 2,000 years ago. And so what would happen is if a family had a child they did not want, they would take that baby and they would just leave it in the wilderness. Just set it on a rock somewhere and let nature take its course. Now if you happened to be walking and found one of these babies that had been abandoned, you could take that baby home and it would become your slave. And that's another form of how slaves were brought into the Roman Empire. So you see there's some pretty big differences. So it wasn't race-based. You couldn't tell who was a slave and who was not a slave you would dress like everybody else. Not only that, in my particular culture, slaves were not forced to remain uneducated. I went to school right alongside of my master, Lucius. And in fact, at his payment, he sent me to one of the finest Roman schools to be further educated in order that I might teach his children. So I was able to attend Institutum Ex Muteus and was able to ad- acquire an education those of you who get it, was able to acquire an education that even surpassed his. So, in many ways, Roman slavery is radically different from many other forms of it. So, I'm able to teach his children. In fact, some slaves have more artistic ability than their masters. Might even be more astute as far as culture is concerned, concerned in knowing where everything is going. So, slavery is a very different system. Now, again, it's still slavery. I am still owned. But there's another slight difference, is there is a good chance, or a chance, that I might be freed someday. Either I could acquire wealth and buy my own freedom back, or my my, my master might be, be happy with my service and choose to free me. Hundreds of slaves in Rome are freed every single year. So it's not uncommon for that to happen. And this is where we stand. So slavery is a little bit different for me. And so I have grown up underneath of this system. And many Christians ask the question, How come Paul did not teach the abandonment of slavery as a system? How come he never seems to say this is an evil sin that must be cut off? And I think the reason why he does does not call for the immediate freedom of all slaves is not because he necessarily thought slavery was a good thing. In fact, his teaching is going to do more to undermine slavery throughout the Roman Empire than perhaps anything else. But the gospel is not going to start by tearing down systems. The gospel doesn't start with changing systems. The gospel starts with changing individual hearts. That's what the gospel has always been about. Now, so here's what I want you to think through. If a slave has had his heart transformed, more can be done to change culture through one heart that's been transformed, even in a bad system, than maybe anything else. But I want you to think of the flip side. The very best of systems can be totally and utterly corrupted if the heart is evil that's leading it. Have you not seen this in your own history? So systems are changed not by edicts declared by leaders, but by individual hearts being transformed. And so slavery is already starting to be undermined in the Roman culture. The Bishop of Rome right now, his name is Clement, he was a former slave. So he is the overseer of the most influential and one of the largest churches in the Roman Empire. He is, he is leading slaves and slave masters and free people and he himself was a slave. So are you starting to see where this is going? So Paul does not directly tell slaves anything as far as how to get out of the system. He does say if you can buy your freedom to do it, but he says if you can't buy your freedom, it doesn't matter, which is a rather remarkable thing to say. So there's something bigger going on here. Can you imagine what freedom in Christ is going to do for the world? And perhaps you, who are many centuries ahead of me, can look back through your history and see how the church has brought transformation in this regard. So I I believe I can speak to you on this text about slavery because I am one. I have less rights than any of you in this room and Paul gives me specific sets of instruction on how to live and maybe more specifically how to work. What to do with half of my waking hours. For most people work can be a drudgery some of the time. Agreed? For some people work is a drudgery. All the time. And Paul's going to address that to me a slave, right? I don't have rights. My master can tell me, go clean the toilets for all day and I have to do it. I can't quit. I can't be like hand in my two-week resignation and walk out and find something else. So if I can find meaning in slave work, how much more is it possible that you, the freest culture in the world, can find meaning in drudgery kind of work, menial work work that you don't find satisfying. The gospel is going to give something to us. It's going to give us meaning and purpose to our work, and it doesn't even matter the type of work that we do. So I want to structure my sermon around three points, if you will allow me. I would like to address the true purpose of all work. I would like to address how the fall and sin of mankind has affected and corrupted all forms of work, and then to take a look at how Christ can bring hope to work he can reinstitute strength behind work for us. And Paul's gonna do all those things in just those few verses that I read to you. So the first thing that the Bible tells us, that Paul tells us, is that God ordained work, and therefore all work that contributes to human flourishing, to human development is godly. All work that does that. So allow me to define it for you. It's anything done to promote human flourishing. This is not the same thing as employment. And I want to make a very clear line for a point later on in my sermon. Work and employment obviously overlap, but work is not employment. Does that make sense? So work is some of those things that every culture has to deal with. Now my culture is dualistic, and I'd like to explain what that means. My culture is built on Greek philosophy, which basically instructs these two realities. You have the physical world that's low. It's earthy. It's ultimately unimportant. Then you have the spiritual realm, the realm you can't see, the moral realm, the real realm. And that matters. And so needless to say, if you do menial work in my culture, you are a second-class citizen. You are judged based on the type of work that you do. So if you're the type that's a farmer, if you're the type that cleans things or cooks, if you do things with your physical body for the physical bodies of other people, you're a second-class worker. Now if you're of the second type, the elite group, the group that uses their mind that reaches in beyond the physical realm. So perhaps if you're an educator or if you're a philosopher or an orator or a political leader, well then you're somebody. You're special. Now I can I can imagine it's very difficult for this particular culture to understand how you could possibly live with a dualistic approach, right? I'm sure none of you in here understands how you could have two types of citizens based on their work ethic and what they do, right? I'm sure all of you being the free system that's built on equality, look at my society and roll your eyes at the ridiculous nature of judging a person's value based on what they do for a living. So, I won't try to explain my culture to you because it's probably just too outlandish for you to possibly grasp, but when Paul walked into our culture And opened the Bible to us. He did something we could not even begin to understand. Because the way we view culture, the way we view work, is there's the secular type and the sacred type. right? There's things that don't matter. And then there's the things that ultimately do matter. And if you're not in the spiritual working kind, your work doesn't matter and Paul came in and said that's not true. Now needless to say, that way of looking at life has filtered into the church. So if you're a pastor, if you're an elder, if you're one of those types of people, then you're somehow more spiritual, more important than if you're a farmer or a carpenter. So we have to fight that within my culture, and I'm sure you have to fight it in some form within yours. But when Paul came in, he he threw a, a big wrench in that whole way of looking at work, that whole way of looking at life, because He called us to live an ethic, a work ethic, a moral code that didn't change depending on what you did for a living. That a pastor's morality and how he handles things is no different than you and your job. Now, most of us live that way. Most of us live, you do this when you're at work, you live by this set of rules when you're at work, and when you're at church, you talk a different way. You act a different way. You live by a different set of rules. But Paul comes in and says, that is not the way it's supposed to be. There is one code that overshadows them all. So he began by teaching us about what Genesis said. And this was rather remarkable for my people. Genesis begins with God working in the physical realm, molding clay, working with physical material. And he didn't call the physical material bad. In fact, when he's done making dirt and making water and stars and fish, what does he call it? He calls it good and then he does something even more remarkable the same God of the universe comes down and doesn't really have hands but figuratively uses hands to take clay and dirt and shape it into a human breathe spiritual life into this human and then he raises this human up and says this is very good he doesn't say angels are very good he says this human It's a mixture of the physical and the spiritual, the earthly and the heavenly, the temporal and the eternal. He looks at this being and says, this being is very good. And then the more remarkable thing continues. The first thing he tells this man to do is work. And he gives him a very unique set of job descriptions. The first one is so menial, most of us in here wouldn't want to do it. The first thing is, work with your hands and be a gardener a garden. Shape this garden. Make it the way you think it needs to be. But then he gives man this other set of work that all of us are like, whoa. He says, have dominion and authority over the entire universe. Name animals. Use your mind. Rule. And Adam didn't look at one job as bad and the other job as good. He didn't put that line in the sand to say, well, I like the authority ruling part, but pulling and fruit and shaping vines, I don't want to do that. That's, that's lesser work. Adam didn't have that mentality because all work, if it's done for the good of mankind, pleases God and is an act of worship. Whether you're the president of your country or the lowest dishwasher at the lowest restaurant, if your job is to cause other people's lives to be better and you do it for the glory of God, there is no difference before him. Now, you can see why this changed how we saw things. It blew us away. Work isn't defined by importance based on what we call important, but based on what he calls important. So Paul taught us that all work done wholeheartedly unto the Lord is a worship act. It's worship. So if you think about how that's going to impact the way you live, it's amazing. And so here's what he tells us. Slaves who may be forced to clean toilets for 12 hours a day you're serving God, not your earthly master. You're serving the Lord. Do it as if Jesus was there, as your Lord and master. Our brother Peter goes on to say that we are the, the brotherhood. We are the priesthood of all believers. That every one of us is called to a spiritual work. Now, he didn't mean that every one of us is called to be a pastor or a missionary. He said every one of us is called to work and everything we do can be a spiritual act of worship because we are the priesthood. We bring Christ to wherever we go, and that's going to start to transform culture and transform everything. So a pastor's call is no more important than a farmer's call, just as the hand is no more important than the eye. They're just different. They're meant to do very different things. So this means if you work for the good of people, and if you do it wholeheartedly unto the Lord, your job is good and does good things now my wife has the privilege of staying home with my two children my master has given me that privilege that she does not have to work and a lot of people look at that and think not very significant but she does something super significant to the flourishing of my whole society she does two things that are very significant the first is she raises my two children now i'll explain why this is a big deal if she chooses not to invest in them correctly instead of becoming agents of regeneration and shaping society and strengthening the the weak parts of the fabric of my culture. My two kids could become crazy rebellious little heathens and tear structure down and become agents of destruction, not rather than agents of construction. So that's one task. The other task, what if she stops cleaning the kitchen? Like, doesn't do anything. We would die. And I don't mean that in exaggeration form. If she stops cleaning the countertops, we get sick and die. Eventually. So, is a, is a stay-at-home mother's job less significant than someone who invests money in a wobbly economy? Or builds a bridge? Before God, I say no. That every job that contributes to the increase of people, the flourishing of humanity, whether it's a, a mother staying at home with her kids, or a person who leads a nation before God, is honoring to him. Because there is no dualism. There is no low jobs and high jobs. There's just jobs that honor God because of the attitude of the heart, and there's jobs that dishonor God, again, because of the attitude of the heart. Now, Paul's going to tell us a little bit more. If you read this text, here's what he tells us. He says, every slave who works hard will be rewarded. Now, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, He extends a little bit on this concept of reward and says, it's an inheritance. Now, I want you to put yourself in my shoes. I am a slave. I own no property. And he says that I will have an inheritance as a son of the king. What a motivator for me. So when I'm teaching my master's children and I have a bad day and they don't listen and nothing happens that seems productive, that's not the end of my life. I have a reward that's coming, an inheritance. That's coming for me. And that means I can't look at my master's kitchen slave who has the worst job in the entire household and say I'm better than him because he's working for a master that's over both of us. He's working for the flourishing of the community. I can't judge him because only the master in heaven has the ability to judge. Now, that also means the flip side. My master can't degrade me. Now, he can say degrading things to me, But because he is my master, does not change my identity. I am free in Christ. And I don't have to allow myself to be viewed as less than human, even if he chose to do that. Now, my master is a Christian, so I am in a different position. It just means I'm not inferior to him, because my master is going to have to answer to God someday for his treatment. Just as your masters, your bosses, are going to have to answer to God for their treatment of you. And they can't determine who you are. You can allow them to. They have no right to. Because if you notice in that text, it says, Obey your earthly masters. Their master, their boss, their managing nature over you is going to come to an end upon your death or theirs. But there's a boss who's going to continue to be our boss and master a thousand years from now, ten thousand years from now, for all eternity. Now, I want to move to my second point. The fall of mankind, the sin that has entered the world, has had a deep effect on work and has introduced to us some dangers, some very big dangers to how we view work, how we handle work. So when Adam fell, all parts of work were impacted. So now labor of any kind, labor of a relational type, relationships take work and guess what? It doesn't come easy. I probably don't have to tell you that. Labor of the physical type, when you work a garden there are now weeds, there are things that work against you. And when you work even spiritually, to allow Christ to have reign in your life. That doesn't come naturally. You work hard in those areas, and now there's pain, and there's blood, and there's difficult, and to do the things the way God tells us to do it, it's counterintuitive. It goes against how we think. So what feels like the right thing to do in a work situation often is not the right thing to do. And we have to fight that because the sin impacted how we view work and how we live. So it should come as no surprise that there is a lot of tension within my church. How, how does God demand that I obey my master when I am his brother and we serve the king of kings? How can he tell me what to do? How do I handle that? Or what do we tell another slave in my church whose master is, is horrible, is wicked? What do we tell him when he has to hate going to his job in the morning, when he wakes up from his house and has to go serve his master, his master is a horrible person. How do we encourage him? And again, Paul's going to give us some instruction. But we're gonna see a couple things. The first major danger within work is the fear of being vulnerable. Now, I wanna explain this for a second. For a slave, it's pretty obvious. We are vulnerable. If you're on the lower end of the the class system, there's a lot of vulnerability. You don't have a lot of power. If you're a a student at school, you don't have a lot of power. If you're a low person at your employment, you don't have a lot of power. So vulnerability is pretty obvious. And God calls us not to fear being vulnerable because, again, we serve someone who loves us, who's higher than the boss. And so we do not have to live out of fear. But I want to put on the flip side, again, you guys are free, so this might be different for you. How is the boss vulnerable by obeying this command? Look what Paul tells my master. If my master does this, do not threaten them. Treat your slaves in the same way that you would treat your brother in Christ. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism. What's the vulnerability if my master lives that out? Now, Seneca, a very famous Roman orator in Rome, here's what he says about slavery. He says, masters, drive fear into the hearts of your slaves. You want a slave that's afraid of you because then they won't rebel. They won't steal from you. They won't try to hurt you. Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher a couple centuries before me, who's had impact throughout the unknown world, here's what he said. Some people are meant to be slaves. They are born to be slaves. Treat them as such. Now, our culture is very against trying to break down this divide because Rome is built on slavery. So Paul comes in and says, masters, treat your slaves as a brother in Christ. If he does that, he is opening himself up to vulnerability, right? Right? A slave could take advantage of a master who's too lenient, who's too kind, who's too gracious, and might I say, who's too much like Jesus? Could a person like that be taken advantage of? So, work introduces vulnerability, and most of us fight that vulnerability. We don't want to be open. But there's two other forms of danger that come with work there's the underwork tendency to not do your job well, and then there's the overwork tendency to find your identity in what you do, too much. So Paul addresses the underwork first, so I'm gonna take a look at that. Here's what he tells us. He says, be very careful about the temptations that come with underworking. Now for most of us, it's the lower class jobs that are traditionally in this category, to not underwork. So he gives us two sets of instructions. He says this to to our slaves, obey them not to win their favor. The first reason why most people would work hard if you're in a lower position is because it's selfishly motivated. If I work hard, maybe my master is going to heap rewards on me. Maybe I won't have to do the cleaning toilet kind of job. Maybe he'll elevate me up. But I'm working not for his good, not for the good of the community, not for God. Who am I working hard for? Myself. It's selfishly motivated. He then goes on to say, and don't work hard only when your master's eyes are on you. What's that built on? Fear. I want to work hard only when someone's gonna see me. So have you ever been a part of a community, maybe a school or a workplace, where everyone works hard when the manager walks by, when the teacher walks by, when the boss walks by, and as soon as the boss is gone, put your feet up. You don't wanna work too hard after all. We don't wanna set too high of a standard for us to work by, right? We wanna get by with C's. Let's not push this whole A category of thinking. Have you ever been a part of a a business or an organization where when the boss is around, everybody has great things to say? You're wonderful. You're the best boss I've ever had. And then as soon as the boss leaves, the door closes. Gossip slander. That boss's name gets ripped through the mud. If you've ever been a part of a community like that, Paul says a Christian cannot live that way. Can't live by that set of practices. Because there's a master, and here's where he says, that just transforms us. He doesn't try to challenge the slave to work harder just to work harder. He says, work harder because you're working for the Lord. Did the Lord become vulnerable for us? Did the master of the universe lower himself in order to be injured by the people he came to save? The person with no vulnerability became the ultimate epitome of vulnerability on the cross. The God who created the universe is hanging naked on a cross, beaten half to death, shamed and humiliated in front of his creation. Now, if he can do that for me, then certainly I can take an insult from my master. Certainly I can overlook a lot. The second thing, we are called not to work hard only when his eye is on us, the master's eye is on us. When does the Lord's eye ever leave you? Never. So I work for the Lord because I know he sees. And it's not like a dictatorial oversight. It's a loving father who's never gone. And he says, don't work hard in order to please your master, in order to use him for your own benefit, because we don't have to worry about earning God's favor. His favor is on us already. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He loved us while we hated him. While we were his enemy, he came and died for us. So, he tells us, do not fall into the temptation of underworking, of not doing your best. And he gives us the reasons why. And then he moves on to the overwork category of people, which usually is the people who are in charge, that they work the 90-hour weeks. They're the ones who never, ever take a break because here's the danger in their mindset. My identity, my value, whether it's through power or through pleasing people or through gaining cash or money, my value is found in what I do. And if I don't do what I do well, I lose who I am. And so there's a tendency to overwork. To put too much time into your work. Too much time into your efforts, your energies. And Christ calls us to say, if you lose everything, you haven't lost me. Which means you haven't lost your identity. If you get passed over for a promotion, who are you serving? Your boss or the Lord? Because he never misses a promotion. He never misses what you do. He says you don't have to live in fear of not being recognized. Because I see it all. And so he challenges us, if we're tempted to underwork or overwork, to say, you can let all that go. You can work hard in the worst possible jobs because you're working for the Lord. And if you are tied to your job too tightly, you can let it go because it's not going to save you. So he's going to give us two helpful perspectives, the first and most basic I've already addressed. You have a master who's going to still be your master a thousand years from now when you're dead. So if you serve and live your life before him, you will naturally do what you're supposed to do in this life. All other earthly masters come to an end. So what are you looking to hear? Here's what Jesus tells us, that those who serve the Lord will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, good and faithful slave, come and share your master's happiness. But he adds something more to it, doesn't he? He doesn't end it with, you're just a slave. He says, I'm leaving and I'm making a place for you and I'm gonna come and take you to be with me and you, my disciples, are my brother, your family. You're not just a servant enjoying your master's happiness. You're a child enjoying the, the, the privilege of the childhood of God. And that's what he's calling us to. The second thing is he shows no favoritism. We all struggle, I think, with this. Some of us have a tendency to overemphasize leadership, right? We, we kind of naturally, either subtly or directly, kind of favor those who are in power. So maybe in the context of Ephesians 5, we have, Husbands, we have parents, and we have masters, the the, the leaders. So some people are kind of prone to put more privilege on those who are in charge. And Paul says, don't do that. God the Father shows no favoritism. This group of people who has a tendency to overemphasize leadership has a hard time seeing how power can be abused, and they easily see rebellion. The flip side of that is people who have a tendency to identify with the, the downtrodden, the ones who are weaker on the scale. So these are the people who are kind of skeptical towards leadership. Again, in my country, we have an emperor. We have one guy calling the shots. You guys, from what I gather, have a whole system set up that's very complicated, and it's easy to become skeptical of that, right? To become prone to thinking about who are being pressed down. And this group of people clearly sees how power can be abused, but it's much harder to see how rebellion can happen and selfish will is is used and so so God says there is no favoritism with me I don't elevate one over the other I don't put one as more important than the other there's an there's a, no favoritism with me there's an even nature so he lays out for us the challenge of what that's going to mean and it's rather interesting in my culture there's all kinds of leaders who have come up with household codes Ways that masters are supposed to lead, husbands are supposed to lead, parents are supposed to lead. But you know what never has been done? There has never, up until Paul, been a code given to Roman society that starts with the vulnerable, weak members of the, of the house. So if you think through the passage, and we didn't read all of five, who does Paul start addressing? Wives. He gives dignity to women. He then moves on to children. Obey your parents and then he moves on to slaves. Honor your masters. In every other culture before this, you only gave codes to those who were in charge because who cares what a wife thinks? Who cares what a child thinks? Who cares what a slave thinks? You're the master. You're the leader. You do what needs to do, and everyone else will just fall in line. But Paul doesn't operate that way. He begins with the weak, gives instruction to the weak, and then addresses goes this way all the way through, giving instruction for each group of persons, whether slave or master, and he says there is no favoritism, because before God, there's different roles within culture, but before God, those are all going to end, and all will stand on equal playing field before the Father in heaven, and what you did in this world will matter, but you don't carry that over with you, you don't carry the authority of boss to heaven, you don't carry the authority of husband to heaven. You don't even carry the authority of parent to heaven. Those things end on this earth, and that changes how we see things. So he gives us that perspective. We have one master who's in heaven. We all will answer to him, and he's never leaving us. And we have a father who never shows favoritism. So he gives us the strength to do this. This is not a call to work harder. It's not a call to submit more. It's a call to allow Christ more truth in you, because he's already done it. He's done more than just set an example of what leadership looks like. He's done more than just set an example of what submission to the Father looks like. He says this to all true believers of my church and your church. I will give you my spirit to enable you to do this. So that when you fail, I can raise you back up. And I can slowly, ever so slowly, begin to transform how you view work. So that you do it with the motivation of the heart to please and honor God. Because our careers are not going to die for us. If you spend your life pursuing a career, it will not die for you. And if you fail it, your career is going to let you go. How many people get fired when they fail? Who else could you serve? Perhaps pleasing people, serving your bosses. If you put your entire hopes and dreams on one individual to meet that for you, that is a burden too big to bear, and they will break under the pressure. So who else can you serve, ultimately, when you go to work? If you can't serve the Lord, you will have to find a lesser God to serve at work. And Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's your own self, power, money. All those things are going to fail you if you put your hope in them. Only, and here's what Paul is telling us, only if you serve the Lord can you do the most menial task with joy and not be broken over never getting promoted. You can find meaning in that because we have a master who did that for us and now calls us to do the same for others. So my last point here is our hope in Christ provides strength when nothing goes right. Because let's be honest, there's gonna be days at work, weeks at work, months at work, years at work, when nothing goes right. And he says there is a proper reward for those who continue to work. There's an inheritance coming. So I'm a sinner who happens to be a teacher And I teach other sinners who happen to be students. I am a sinner who happens to be a father. And I happen to have sinful children, some of you know this. I am a husband, I happen to be a sinner. And who am I married to? A sinner. At the very least, everyone in this room is involved with a sinful person in their life and that's at least yourself. Even if you sit in a room all by yourself and don't go to work and don't know anybody. So what happens when you take a group of sinners and put them together? Conflict, trouble, problems in your family. Why do we expect that not to be the case at work? And so here's the hope for us. When you go to work and things don't go well, you get passed over for a promotion. You have your your ideas stolen from you. You don't get a break when you're supposed to get a break. It's in your contract. What do you do then? And the gospel gives us hope and strength for those days because we live in a fallen world and we are never, ever going to get out of that in this life. But we have the hope of bringing some of the kingdom of God here. And maybe it's only going to be this much. We spend 60 years of our life working hard and we only see the kingdom of God come into this world this much. God says, that's all I'm asking for you to do is live by the heavenly standard. And that's gonna to start to bring transformation. Because normally this receipt can lead to destruction, this recipe of bringing people together who are equally sinners, throw them in and say, get something accomplished. But the gospel gives us the means to see something happen. If it wasn't for the fact that I serve an eternal master, as a slave, I would live dualistically. I would live with one set of work ethics here, and I would put on my smiley face and come to church and I would leave a clear line in between because what does it matter what I do at work? But there is an eternal master. There is one who's going to ask for me to give an account. And he's not going to ask what kind of ethical standard I live by in front of Christians, or in front of my family, or even in front of work. He's going to say, how did you honor me in every single area of your life? Because he doesn't draw a line around work because work doesn't stop when your 9 to 5 job ends the developing of human flourishing, causing other people to thrive, that doesn't stop until you go to sleep. And maybe not even then, because then hopefully your energies are being resuscitated and you can continue to add flourishing to the culture you live in. So when everything falls apart around us, we have a vision of something greater than, than any work we do, something higher. And it provides a standard that keeps work from corrupting me. Because I think all of us know the temptation to allow work to corrupt us, But here's the flip side. It also provides the Holy Spirit in me so that I don't corrupt my work, to lower my work. And it provides the ability for me to serve people and use money, rather than serve money and use people. That can only be done through the gospel. There's no other way. Now I have overlooked an entire segment of this congregation because there is no parallel segment in my congregation back home, and that is the retirement community my culture, retirement is deaf. There is, except for the very, very elite, there is no such thing as retirement. But here in this culture, I found retirement happens at like 65. And some of you will live to be 85. That's 20 years of retirement. My culture has no idea what that even would look like. So I would like to address retirement very quickly. First off, the Bible doesn't say anything against retirement per se. But remember, I want to make a very clear line between work and employment. Employment can end. Employment can change. And let's be honest, we're all gonna slow down eventually. Uh, My boss, my master, has a tendency every so often in the summertime to take his kids to vacation in Venice, which leaves me at home. Now, he's not the type to just let me sit there doing nothing, so he he lends me out to other people in his community. And there was one particular week I was working with a guy who gets up at 3.30 in the morning. Can you imagine getting up at 3.30 in the morning to do your work? And he started in his, like, teens and he would just work like 20 hours straight or something ridiculous like that, and that's just how he was. And I asked him. I worked for him for one week when he was in his 50s, so I was able to not die. And we actually took a 15-minute lunch break, and I asked him, what's it like? He was like, well, right around 40, things slowed down for me. I just couldn't do what I did when I was 20. That's going to happen, I assume. I'm only 33 now, so... You know, i still got a couple years before that wall comes, but some of you, looking at you, have already hit that wall. Well, here's the thing. When the retirement age comes, what do you do with that? And I want to make a point. You don't ever stop working. You never stop causing the flourishing of people around you to continue. In fact, retirement provides you the opportunity and the freedom and the wisdom and the insight to aid in human flourishing maybe more than a person who works a nine-to-five job. So, I don't think the Bible tells you that you can't stop your employment. If you can work in such a way as to to do that well, then do it. But what I would highly, highly encourage you never to think of is retiring from serving people. Retire from serving the Lord. That never happens. Work may change. It may slow down. It may take on a whole different way of doing things. But by the grace of God, may you never stop serving people. May you never stop causing the flourishing of people around you to improve. And even if that means your prayer life has more time to grow, perhaps giving more resources away, giving your time and energy away, inviting people over to pray for them, it can't stop. Because you have a freedom now that you're to use for the building up of other people. You have more resources to give. So the proper reward for your Christian labor is not retirement in this life. The proper reward for your labor in Christ is compensation of a divine nature in heaven, whenever that may come. Because Jesus tells us there is a place where whatever you invest in that kingdom, no moth is going to destroy it. No rust is going to destroy it. No thief has access to those things. So where are you going to put your time, your energy, and your money, whether retired or working? In this world that's coming to an end, or in the next that's going to live forever? Because Paul also told us, fire is coming fire is going to reveal the quality of our work some of it's going to be burned up as useless and some of it even cleaning a toilet in a good attitude may be gold for us the fire is coming it's going to test the quality and it's not the quality of the type of your work whether you clean toilets your whole life or were a dictator of a small country what matters and what will be judged is who you did the work for for the lord in gold, precious stones, costly metals, for yourself, burned up like straw, hay, stubble. Gone at the moment. So where are you investing? Where are you putting your efforts? So the question isn't, what's going to happen in my spiritual quiet time? That's part of the question. The bigger question is, how am I going to serve the Lord at work tomorrow? Now, I believe you have in this country something called Labor Day tomorrow, where your government pays you and you're off. You get to go to bed, I guess. I don't know, whatever you do on Labor Day. So I guess Tuesday. When you wake up to go to work on Tuesday, where are you going and who are you serving and why are you working? Because there's coming a kingdom that's going to give legitimacy to everything we do. And everything we do is just foreshadowing that kingdom if you're a Christian. So here's some, some thoughts. If you're part of enforcing laws, remember that the perfect judge is coming and justice is his scepter. If you're in construction or engineering, remember you reflect the grand architect of the New Jerusalem, and any construction you do is pointing to Him and bringing His name glory on this earth. If you're a teacher, or I might add, if you're a student, a new year is beginning, remember that we will be fully known as we then have the opportunity to know fully Him and be known by Him. Perhaps you're a stay-at-home parent remember we have a Heavenly Father who's raising us, In any way we do that as a parent, we reflect Him. If you're in the healthcare profession, remember we serve the great physician who is going to heal all pain and mend all brokenness and wipe away every tear. And in any way you do that on a small level, you are bringing the kingdom of God to this earth and reflecting Him. If you're in finance, remember to invest wisely in the future kingdom, not just. If you're in retail or service industries, remember our master came not to be served, but to serve, all the way to the point of giving his life as a ransom for many. If you're in the military, remember to serve the king, the general, with utmost devotion and oneness of mind. And if you are retired, remember your eternal home is not here. There is no retirement home that's forever here, but there is a resting place that's eternal that's coming work for that end. And there's a story, probably fictional, that's told in my church about a missionary couple who were returning to their home church in Rome after serving on the mission field for 40 years. And on that ship, as they were moving from where they were serving back to Rome, happened to be the Caesar. And when the, the missionary couple who had served Christ for 40 years gets off the boat and Caesar gets off the boat, there's this huge parade and there's soldiers lining the way between the royal palace and the bay and there's people cheering, and flowers are being thrown, and music is being played, and everyone is rejoicing at the Caesar who's returned home. He only went there to hunt big game. He brought back a couple dead animals. But all of Rome was rejoicing in his return. And these, this missionary couple is walking these streets to their small home where they will probably die within a couple of years. Their church is going to take care of them. And they start to grumble and complain. We served Christ for 40 years. there's no parade for us. There's no recognition. There's no reward. The Caesar, the emperor, goes off and shoots a big animal with a bow or somebody shoots it for him and he comes back and there's a huge reward for him. A huge celebration. A huge parade. What is this? And so as they started walking towards their home, it's as if God spoke in and said you're looking for recognition? Do you know why you haven't received your reward yet? you're not home yet it's not over yet and there's a reward coming and it's worth it we have to believe it by faith we have to seek the kingdom of God now we have the past of Christ demonstrating his love for us and we have the future heavenly reward that's coming and we live in the already but not yet stage of life it's already here but not yet so may I end this message One more set of words of Paul to us. He says, may you use your freedom not to indulge the sinful nature, but to serve one another in love. And as we say in Latin, Salve, my brothers and sisters.